You're listening to PQ, Pastoral Quotient, Disruptive Christian Leadership. I'm your host, Father Charles Clement. Welcome to Pastoral Quotient. My guest on this episode is a physician in OBGYN who has cared for thousands of women and delivered thousands of their babies during her 20 years of practice. She has a full patient load, stays plenty busy, and does very well for herself and her practice. In many ways, she's a typical obstetrician. But there is a significant twist. Dr. Carla Palaszczuk decided 20 years ago that she would not do tubal ligations or, perhaps more surprisingly, prescribe the pill. As you'll hear from the interview, Carla is not a crackpot, she's not an ideologue, and she's not mean. She loves women, she loves her practice, she loves science, she loves God. Her decision to just say no to the pill is because of these loves and not in spite of them. Full disclosure, I have known Carla since her early days in medical practice and in recent years have gotten to renew my friendship with her. She is someone that I respect and admire deeply. In recent months, there have been all sorts of opinions offered about Pope Paul VI, controversial encyclical letter Humanae Vitae of Human Life as it has reached its 50th anniversary of publication. By defying the common mentality, the 60s zeitgeist of supposed sexual liberation, and even the majority report of his own advisory council, Pope Paul VI definitely stuck his neck out and paid a dear price for his prophetic stance in publishing this document, which will perhaps go down as the defining sign of contradiction in modern church history. I don't want to get into the arguments and controversies of Humanae Vitae here. If you are a listener of this podcast, you most likely have done your own research and drawn your own conclusions. My choice to have Carla on the show perhaps gives you some inkling of where my sympathies lie, but I'm here to give her the platform to tell you her story. One thing I would challenge anyone to do, however, is go through the four prophecies listed in the document and show me that they have not come true. Anyway, tangents aside, the focus of this podcast in general is to interview practitioners, disruptors, if you will, in the modern sense of people who are finding creative ways to advance the kingdom of God against forms of ineffective status quo practice that have not produced fruit of any real value. These are spirit-filled people who are not afraid to challenge common assumptions and set out with the newness of the spirit to reach hungry people, including those in the margins and peripheries with the gospel of love and life. So for the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, I thought, rather than rehashing arguments about contraception, why not find someone who actually has rigorously thought through and accepted Humanae Vitae and its implications? Someone who is operating at a very high professional level and specializes in caring for women and their fertility and who, in fact, is a woman herself. So that's what I did. In this interview, I speak with Carla about her journey towards medicine, her return to the faith after a lukewarm adolescence and young adulthood, her growth as a maturing disciple of Jesus, and her decision to opt out of prescribing the pill in favor of a more holistic approach to fertility awareness. Something that we didn't talk about, but that I feel might be important to offer context to the listener, is just how difficult Carla's journey has been. In addition to taking a path in her medical practice that is definitely outside of the usual approved and commonly accepted ways, she's also a single mom raising a soon-to-be teenager, having lost her husband several years ago to a tragic accident. So Carla definitely has first-hand experience of carrying the cross with Jesus, though from her upbeat and positive personality, you'd never know it. Anyway, that said, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Carla Palaszczuk. Good morning, Carla. Good morning, Father. And welcome to the Pastoral Quotient Podcast. I bet you never thought you'd be asked to be on, on this show. This is a first for me. I bet you never even knew the show existed. I didn't, but I'm excited about listening to your other podcast. 
Great. Well, thanks for being here. So, Carla, you and I are old friends. It's been about 20 years. I was, I think, a deacon, transitional deacon stationed at St. Pius. Yes. So that would have been the summer of 98. Correct. And you had just finished residency, right? Finished residency in 97, and then I moved back to the Quad Cities in September 97. Okay. So you were just getting started in your practice. Right. And you were volunteering as part of the core team for the life team at St. Pius. Right. Okay. Even that was one of those things. Grew up cradle Catholic and fell away from my faith throughout my 20s. Moved back home, went to church with my mother. And, of course, she introduced me to the priest, Father Gallagher. He's like, hey, how would you like to volunteer for this? And I'm thinking, no, I really don't want to, but I'm not going to turn down a priest asking me to volunteer for some kids. You Were you born and raised in... Born and raised Catholic. Born and raised Catholic. Catholic school? Catholic high school. You went to Alleman? Okay. And then you went to, where'd you go to college? College was Illinois State. And that's where you did your med school too, right? So Illinois State was undergrad. I was a chemistry major. And then medical school is SIU, Southern Illinois University. So you did straight track. You did college to med school. Med school. I took a little detour. So college, my family expected me to go to school. Really had no idea what to major in. Ended up majoring in chemistry only because I had enough credits in it. Didn't really think about career path or what I wanted to do. Finished up at ISU. Got a job at Abbott. And I worked in research and development for a couple of years. Didn't you live? Did you live in Waukegan? I lived in Waukegan for one year, yes. Put it there. <laughs> you are the first, you're the first podcast guest wow. who lived in the great city of Waukegan. Okay, so you went to Alleman, and then you went to college, and uh, took a little detour, worked at Abbott, and then how did you how did you make the transition to med school? So, you know, interesting, God is always working our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. So after college, working at Abbott Labs, I had kind of typical 21-year-old know-it-all attitude, like I was going to run my own department, I knew more than the PhDs, I was a little bit of a brat. So a uh, friend of mine is like, well, if you know so much, go back to school. Like, great, fine, I'll go back and get my PhD in chemistry. It's like, no, I really think you should be a doctor. You have a calling to be a doctor. And my thought at that point is, I'm not smart enough, lazy, don't have the work ethic. I really don't see this happening. And he's like, you know what? You really just need to do this. So you didn't even think about it. You weren't like playing doctor when you were a kid. It wasn't on your radar. You were smart, your chemistry. So who? tell me about this friend. So this friend saw in you the future Dr. Carla. So this is, you know, things in life, there's good decisions, we make bad decisions. So this particular friend was a gentleman I was dating, probably not one of my my better calls, but people are put in our lives for various reasons. And he had said during our dating relationship, listen, I really think you need to do this. If you don't, I am going to break up with you. And I had probably not the best self-esteem at the time. I'm like, oh, well, gosh, maybe I really should go for this. So I'm working at Abbott. I had to pick up some extra classes at a junior college to have enough credits to apply to medical school because I didn't have enough biology credits. Then I had to sit for the MCAT, and I did okay on the MCAT. So I did apply to medical school, got in. I told my family, I'm applying to medical school and love my mother dearly. But she's like, you know what? Um, I don't know if you're going to be able to get in. And so her, I talked to her about this afterwards. She's like, well, I didn't want you to get disappointed if you didn't. Of course, then I was crushed thinking, oh, my gosh, even my own family doesn't think I can do this. But I did. I got into medical school and best decision ever. But that was never part of my thought process in college or high school that I wanted to be a doctor. So this guy, what happened after that? Like, so did he know that like by going to medical school, like, you probably would be moving away and not being around him? 
Correct. So I went off to medical school, SIU. First year is in Carbondale. The next three are in Springfield. So obviously the relationship did not continue for various reasons, which turned out to be okay. But at least it got me on the right track for going into medicine. How did he see that you were doctor material? Like, what did he? Was he specific? I have no idea. I really don't know. I mean, that's one of the things that for listeners, like, you never know what a little word of encouragement. So he was a key figure. I mean, he was he he was the guy. And this is somebody who was not Christian background. Does he know what you're doing now? No. So you just after you broke up, you pretty much cut ties. That was it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're out there, what's his first name? <laughs> I'm not gonna. Say you're not even gonna say his first name. <laughs> I was gonna say, okay, well. We'll call him John. John, if you're out there, thank you. You did the world a great service in giving us Dr. Carla. Wow, I just love that. I love those little things of history where like, you know, one relationship at the right time with the right word can push you in a direction which ends up being pretty significant, how God uses these things. Okay, so you went to med school. At this time, are you practicing your faith? No. So my gentleman friend was actually um, Islamic was Muslim. Yeah. So I took some pretty big detours on faith. And so, but during that time period, a lot of questioning. So I really did question the faith. I did read the Quran at that same time too. So I at least felt like when I did come back to the Catholic faith, I had a good foundation on what Catholic really is after looking at other things too. Did you miss it at the time or were you just like so immersed in medical school you didn't have time? No, because the whole process of falling away started during my college years. So between college, working at Abbott, med school. I would go to mass every once in a while with some medical school friends. And interesting, in medical school, there was one of my classmates that was an awesome Catholic doctor. He's family practice now. But he also was planting a couple seeds on brought up natural family planning. So even though I wasn't a practicing Catholic, you know, it's amazing how people say something or have an influence in your life. They're like, oh, wow, I need to maybe reconsider this in the future. So when you say you kind of drifted away from the faith... Were you had you gone from being like pre devout like tech and all that when you were a kid, or did you make a decision like you had philosophical issues with some of the stuff the church taught, or was it just kind of like the twenties drift? It was more the twenties drift. I did go to tech. I did not like tech. I did not like the whole retreat thing. I was probably one of the few kids that did not like it. I can't even tell you why I didn't like it. I just I don't know. Tech was not for me. I did not like it. Um, so it was more the twenties drift. You know, as for my Catholic foundation, it probably was not strong. I think our parents' generation thought we were getting more Catholic teaching than what we probably were, or maybe it wasn't just strong enough, or I wasn't invested enough in it to really understand what the church taught and why. So how about your high school education, like in theology classes? Did that ultimately prove helpful? Not really. So in nothing against the element teachers, I think everybody had a heart of gold trying to teach us, but there wasn't any big take-home that I got from my high school education that helped my faith in the future. Oh, fair enough. So, okay, so fast forward, you, where did you do your residency? So residency was at a Catholic institution. It was called Columbus Cabrini Hospital. It was a Northwestern affiliate. It's all closed down now. Unfortunately, the buildings where I did train at are now condominiums in Chicago. Was that Cabrini Green? So Cabrini Hospital was actually in the near west side, not too far from Cook County, so it was not associated with Cabrini Green. Okay. Was it pretty rough, though? It was really rough. It was actually in between... Uh, black gang territory and Hispanic gang territory. So when I started there, the nurse like, we cannot walk by the windows at night if the shades are up, so if they're not pulled down because of sniper fire. And so the guards would actually walk you out to your car when you're done with your shift. So it was pretty, it was a pretty rough area. 
So did you did you decide in med school that you were going to do the OBGYN route, or how did that come about? So med school, um, loved SIU. It was an awesome education. My th- so third year medical school is when you do rotations in different specialties, family practice, pediatrics, OBGYN. My OBGYN rotation actually was really disappointing. The residents, the doctors I worked with, a lot of the people were not happy. There was just a, a certain negativity in the program, which was disappointing to me because I thought, wow, I think I would really like to go into OB. So it wasn't until my fourth year of medical school when I did an away rotation at St. Joe's Hospital in Chicago when I got to interact with a community practice of physicians and residents who love their job. They had a passion for what they do. They enjoy taking care of women, seeing them from you know the birth of the child through reproductive years. So that really gave me a much better idea on what an OBGYN doctor does, what the practice was. So third year, not so much. Fourth year, I did decide then to go into OB. So you, it was cool. You were able to do your residency kind of all within, sort of within home distance. You were in Chicagoland. So you came back to the Quad Cities and you got a job. Would you get a job at what's now Trinity? When I started looking for jobs outside of residency, I wasn't really too crazy about moving back home. I was looking at other Midwest communities, but my father just passed away a year before that, and I really felt drawn to come back home. Mom's here. I don't. Really, I have some family here, not a lot of family, but instead of working elsewhere, I really thought the best place would be to come back home. So I came back home, still really not um, practicing faith, going to church, you know, once in a while, but it's more of a an afterthought. It wasn't something that was really jumping into my faith. So it wasn't really until I came back that faith started having more of an impact on my life. And I started developing a better relationship with God. My job here, though, was my ideal job. So this will kind of come into this later. So I get this job here in the Quad Cities. I'm working for medical arts as a multi-specialty corporation. But the physicians were phenomenal. So when I interviewed, I'm like, okay, I want to work with this practice. So even though I work at Trinity, I am not a Trinity employee, but that's where I admit my patients to them. Okay. So you're going to St. Pius. You're kind of having a little bit of a faith awakening. So Father Gallagher factors in. How would how did that come about? Like, how did he identify you as being a potential core team member for Life Teen? And then how did that conversation go in order to get you involved in that? It was after Mass. And, you know, priests would greet parishioners after Mass, and I'm not a member of St. Pius yet at this point. And walking out of Mass with Mom, and Father Gallagher, of course, greets us. And I think he was looking for anybody that was upper, you know, late teens, 20s, early 30s of a core group. And he spread out a wide net of asking people to be life team, I guess, core members. Since then, the group of us that were volunteers, we've all had phenomenal lives. I mean, not only were having great lives then, but it's the amount of marriages that came from that group, vocations. We've had a couple that have gone into priesthood, marriages through our life team group and we've had that bond as the volunteers not so much even for the kids but with the volunteers That's so awesome. it really it planted a lot of seeds it helped me going back to church I actually learned how to say the rosary with life team and we were teaching the kids I had to learn myself for the same thing. so it wasn't like you were this uber catholic and, and father Gallagher was like wow this is a person who really knows her faith it was more like you were the right age and he kind of wisely said, if I maybe peg her to do this, I might get her more involved and maybe she'll become more engaged. Very well could be, but I'm very glad he did ask and it set the ball rolling for other things in my life. So what was that like when you started doing Life Teen? What, what did you enjoy about it and how did it, how did it help you kind of get more involved in your faith? So the nice thing, moving back to this area, um, a lot of my friends have moved away. 
so again, I didn't know a lot of people in my age group, so it was instantaneously meeting people. Was reacquainted with my husband at Life Teen, so he was Mark was a year ahead of me, high school, and so we had gotten we started dating after we met Life Teen, so that was pretty instrumental. It was just it was a nice way to spend a Sunday evening. It was we had mass, we had the group for the kids, and it was a good way to interact with other people, and it gave me time to learn about my faith because obviously, if you're going to be talking to kids, you better know what you're talking about. So I had a huge knowledge deficit that I needed to start working on. Would you say that interacting with other young Catholics your age also helped, like becoming friends with with other Catholics? Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the friendships that arose. So, of course, future husband, um, Mark, number one. A friend of mine, Jill Rithmiller, she ended up being in our wedding. So good friend there. And then some of the other Life Team members, even though we don't keep in touch now, when we do see each other, it's like seeing a long lost friend. You just start up right where you left off from. So I've noticed that that's a kind of an important factor for Catholics, young Catholics especially. It's like we live in a very secularized culture where the faith is very privatized and people are very reticent about talking about their faith. And there's a real hunger for it. And I've noticed that like when people can find friends that they can share their spiritual journey with, it can really open up a lot of doors for their spiritual growth. So it sounds like that was kind of the case with you. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, it wasn't something that just happened overnight. Yeah. Tell me a little more. So residency, I trained at a Catholic facility. However, it was not a practicing Catholic. We did have a beautiful Mother Cabrini Chapel. So Columbus Cabrini Hospital. Cabrini was started by Mother Cabrini, also Columbus Hospital was started by Mother Cabrini. Never even heard of her as a saint until I was there training. Beautiful chapel. I think it's part of the National Historic Registry now. Going through residency is rough. As an OB resident, there was times we would work 36-hour shifts, 110 hours a week. It was pretty draining. It was a, a rough, I mean, a lot of the residents I worked with, my close friends, but it was really a rough, rough time. There were times, though, when things were really bad, I would end up in chapel on my knees praying and just would hit mass sometimes but I just kept feeling drawn go to chapel go to chapel whether I really acknowledged it or Which, not thank god you were at a place yeah. where there was a chapel yeah and it was a beautiful chapel actually our OB floor is on fourth floor and there was a balcony overlooking the church so you could step right off the OB floor on the fourth floor and then overlook this beautiful chapel so that had a huge part of playing the seeds for me going back I was very I want to say anti-catholic in residency but knew the church's teaching on reproductive issues did not agree with anything was not supportive and during my residency training when I was chief resident my last Last year, I was in charge of scheduling all the lectures for the year on what the residents were going to learn about. That's a lot of weeks to fill. So I was getting to the point, of course, being a little bit lazy, not having enough material. The physician recruiter, who happened to be a Opus Dei type of person, I didn't know anything about Opus Dei at the time, said, hey, why don't you have the residents learn about natural family planning? And I'm thinking, you know what, if it's going to knock off one of my requirements for getting somebody to come into lecture, sure, why not? So we had a lady come in and give a lecture to the OB residents on natural family planning. I took so much heat for that afterwards from Falcon member and residents that, why are we doing this? I'm like, we're at a Catholic hospital, why not? I learned a lot, and and for that lecture, it planted a lot of seeds of, if we're teaching women in residency the signs of fertility to help them get pregnant, it makes perfect sense on why not using it for not getting pregnant. But I wasn't expecting the hostility concerning that particular lecture. And even though that one lecture didn't change how I was practicing in my residency program, but it did set some seeds that this is possible, this is out there. 
So along the way, there's always little nudges. I think God was giving me that using my faults, my laziness. Okay, let's put this in her path mm-hmm. so it's easier to do that. So it was just interesting. Let's take it from there now. So now you're getting established in your, your life as a doctor, your post-residency, you're back in the Quad Cities, you're sinking in roots. And uh, so how did this journey then go from maybe the typical way of practicing OBGYN to kind of thinking about, you know, the approach that you take now? How did that, how did that kind of walk us through your thought process as best as you can remember it? I look at it as almost a perfect storm in a good way of all of these things happening at the same time. So I moved back to the Quad Cities. I've got my perfect job, working with wonderful partners, um, developing my patient load, doing this volunteer work. But there's that nagging feeling that here I'm prescribing birth control pills to the girls during the day, but I'm talking to the teenagers about abstinence and church teaching with Life Teen. And, you know, that doesn't really quite mesh. It doesn't go together. So they kept, it was kind of weighing heavy on my head and heart. It's an integrity issue. It's a huge integrity issue. How could I be behaving one way and then, you know, not really doing the same thing with my work practice? During this whole time period, uh, between Father Gallagher leaving pamphlets on my doorstep about Catholic Medical Association or other organizations that promote NFP, there was, he's retired now, but um, Dr. Clem Cunningham, old family practice, retired doc. Jem, he's been with uh, Catholic Medical Association for years. He's in his 90s now. But he would do the same thing. He would stop by my office and leave a pamphlet about a a Catholic Medical Association conference. And then he'd leave another pamphlet about an NFP conference. And then two weeks later, Father Gallagher would say, hey, there's a doctor that does NFP only. Would you ever think of this? So at the same time, I had my hands over my ears. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to listen to you two. And they just were very gradually in loving, not in a nagging way, just giving me a little bit of information here and there. So my little condo that I'm staying at, my stack of Catholic literature is building up, building up, building up. Finally, just with time and also with dating Marx, started looking at this stuff. So I had all these different influences. So I did go to a Catholic Medical Association conference right after I started work. And it was, this was their international conference in New York City. Met doctors throughout the world that actually do practice natural family planning as OBGYNs. I thought they were crazy. When I first met them, I'm like, that can't exist. You can't do that. And I really did not understand it at all. But meeting them and having those contacts, when I finally did change my practice, was just, I can't even say how awesome these ladies and gentlemen were that were OBGYNs that helped me with that practice change because it was pretty life-altering. So you began to hear that this thing existed, this NFP-only practice of OBGYN. You're meeting witnesses who are doing it. You're getting to know them. You're starting to hear some of the reasons why they did that. So what was kind of the tipping point for you where you were kind of like, I might need to start making some changes and with it, maybe some sacrifices? So 98 was when the New York conference was. And then I went to another medical conference put on by Couple to Couple League on physician OBGYN family practice on what NFP was how it works in a practice. So I went to that conference, but while I'm driving to Cincinnati for the conference, I'm listening to a Janet Smith tape called Contraception, Why Not? That was probably one of the big, big pushes right there. She's a theologian. Teaches. I don't know if it was him or Dr. Cunningham, or maybe I think I got multiple copies from various people, but yeah, I had to listen to Janet Smith. Phenomenal tape. It was just life-altering because it really put it all together. I was not familiar with theology of the body. I was not familiar with a lot of other Catholic resources. 
but Janet Smith put in a way that in my simple brain, I'm like, oh, I understand this. This makes sense. And so I went to the conference in Cincinnati and met some docs there. And at this time, I'm really just kind of building up resources. I'm questioning. I'm investigating. And it's all kind of clicking together. Mark, of course, is being supportive. But my prayer life has taken off. You know, I've learned to say the rosary. I'm saying the rosary. I'm now starting to go to daily mass. Not daily mass, going weekly mass and hitting a couple of daily mass. Starting to go to adoration sometimes. I also met some other priests, uh, yourself, of course, um, when you were at St. Pius, Father Sterneman. So others that were giving me this gentle nudge, being very encouraging, without anybody being overly preachy, of just being supportive. Practice-wise, I started talking to my patients about, hey, I'm thinking about doing this and trying to get some input. It was interesting on my patients. Ones I thought would be supportive necessarily weren't supportive, and others that I didn't think would be, would be. It was really hard to read. With my practice, I did tell my partners after the New York conference, I'm not going to do tubules. And I had not done very many tubal ligations, but at that point I said, you know what, I'm not going to do anything surgical to prevent fertility. So I was still kind of on the fence on the NFP investigating. Partners took it fine. They're like, fine, you know, as long as we're doing your cases, we don't care. So I think it was a couple to couple league conference in the summer. I met a doc, Mary Martin, and she's like, what's holding you back? Because we've talked about this now a couple of times. I've been interacting with Mary for probably about six months. She's like, what is holding you back? Like, this is my ideal job. This is my dream job. I'm only here now for two years. My mom's here. If I lose my job, what am I going to do? I've got debt to pay. Everything I've worked for now, I'm in this position. I don't know if I can make that leap. And she looks me in the eye and says, Carla, just do it. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I will. It really was that simple, which sounds crazy. Her name is Mary Martin, Dr. Mary Martin. I think she's in Oklahoma now. Wonderful, OBGYN, very articulate. She does a lot of work with the Billings people. But she just really kind of laid on the line. What are you waiting for? So I had in my mind this big plan. Well, after I've been in practice a little bit longer, then I can transition. And she kind of threw all that out the window. So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm just going to do this, I need to talk to my partners and come up with a plan. So I told my practice partners and our administrator, and they basically all said, well, you know, you're new still. You're only in your second year. We'll see how it goes. We'll give you six months if this doesn't work. We don't see that this is going to work out for you. So I kind of knew that there was a lot on the line with this. So So then you're like really taking a leap of faith to trust in God at this time. You're getting support from from Mark and your friends? Yeah, so Mark's incredibly supportive. Friends are very supportive. Family thinks I'm crazy, which is okay. You know, they really don't understand what I'm doing. Uh, People at work, it's mixed. So there were those who were supportive, but they didn't want to be outwardly supportive. I'm not sure what they were really scared of. So I had a fair amount of anonymous letters of, wow, we hear what you're going to do. We think that's awesome. We really support you. But don't tell anybody we sent you this letter. So I don't know if they thought I had like cooties and I was catching. I'm not sure. But it was just interesting. I had some quiet support, which was nice to know. And so once I made the decision to go, I couldn't turn back. Once I knew in my heart, in my head, this is what God was calling me to do, there was no way I could go back. So I wrote a letter to my patients and basically explained why I was doing what I was doing what I was going to offer and we sent that out and the initial response I kept about a third of my patients a third said see ya we're don't want anything to do with this a third were undecided and since then some have stayed some have gone but this was such a big change that I was recognized with the the diocese there was an article in the Catholic Post and so as words getting out within the community that I was becoming or I was now NFP only I started getting people coming in from as far as Dubuque Iowa 
Peoria driving in to see a doctor who supported the Catholic views, understood the biology and everything that was going on with reproductive stuff, and were choosing to see me for those reasons. So in the end, it ended up helping your practice. It took a while. It was bumpy those first couple years. And I was, yeah, it was rough the first couple years. But in the end, it's the best decision I could have ever made. So after the six-month mark, how did your partners kind of assess the fact that this, this may work? I think I was still breaking even. I was okay. I was not in the red. You know, their, and I'm not sure what their thought process, but my understanding was as long as I wasn't costing anybody money, and I was able to support myself with the practice, pay my nurses, pay my overhead, I was okay to stay as long as I wasn't a drain on the practice. So do you still work with some of these folks today? Yeah, I'm still in the same practice. Yeah, so I still love the practice, love my partners. It's, um, it's a real nice setup, and they've been supportive as much as what they're willing to be supportive as long as they don't cost anybody money, but they're, they let me do my own thing. And so in the end, has it, has it been a financial sacrifice, or are you doing well? I'm doing well. So it's worked out. I talk to a lot of people in the community, some who are very connected with Catholic Church, some not so much, but a lot of them have you as their doctor. And I I never hear anything but positive reports. Okay, so I'm going to take you back here. Thanks for bringing us through kind of the nutshell. Um, I know to us it might be kind of obvious, and maybe to some of our listeners, but let's play devil's advocate here. Like, this is a very countercultural thing like for most people it is not at all self-evident like like nfp is like sounds like a benighted backwards thing from the middle ages the pill sounds like a wonderful invention like why in the world would anybody have a moral issue with this talk us through i mean i'm not asking you to give us any type of like a major lecture here but from your perspective as a physician talk us through why you think your approach is is a better way to do medicine for you through those early years, what I was seeing in my practice is moms would bring in their teenage girls, wanting them to put on the pill. And I, I never really felt comfortable with it, but figure mom knows what's best for her daughter. Her daughter may or may not have been sexually active. But what I would see is we putting them on the pill, invariably within the next year or two, they would become sexually active. Or they would become pregnant. They wouldn't be consistent with the pill. So then they get pregnant, then they're, they're considering, are we ready to be a mom? Am I going to terminate this pregnancy? So the whole abortion stuff came in with a lot of the NFP, too. And the Janet Smith tape was really, I wish I could reiterate how she words things. And I would recommend if anybody's not listened to Janet Smith, Contraception, Why Not?, a plug for that. It really helps explain everything. But invariably, and even the Roe versus Wade decision for abortion, if we're going to have contraception, we have to have an out for women, and that's abortion. So even though I wasn't a practicing Catholic for a big part of my 20s, I inherently knew, and thank God I never did an abortion, that that was wrong. Taking the life was wrong. And just historically, if I may jump in, I mean, it's a fact. The pill came out in early 60s. Roe v. Wade was 73. Abortion became the fail-safe contraceptive basically. And so we still see that in practice. So, you know, all that's kind of weighing heavy on my heart. And then other things, I'd see women on the pill for years and years and years, decide now they want to have a family, they go off and then they can't get pregnant. So I was seeing some problems where women that were on the pill had, one had a stroke, somebody else had some blood clots, others severe headaches and they couldn't take it. So medically I was seeing some issues and I'm picking on the pill, but that's true with the depot shot and with some of the other contraceptive methods. So as I was looking into natural family planning, it just made more and more sense of giving women the skills to learn how their body works. We teach diabetics how to monitor their sugars and watch their diet. It makes perfect sense. Why not teach a woman how to learn her fertility? Women aren't stupid. Why do we have to put them with medicine? We can teach them how to learn how their body works. And the flip side, for their relationships in their marriage, you know, a woman isn't just to have sex with her husband or whatever he wants. It's a relationship thing. So 
And along with my practice change, which is kind of key to on how God works, here I'm willing to make the change with my practice to NFP only, but we didn't have any NFP teachers or only a few in the area. So as I'm making the change, there was one couple, older couple, awesome couple, but a lot of the younger patients wanted to meet with somebody younger. And at the same time, Maggie Schoonmaker, put a plug in for Maggie, my NFP teacher, she was trying to figure out what to do with her and her husband's marriage on family planning and was interested in learning. And it was a perfect fit. As I was changing my practice, I was able to work with Maggie for her to get certified in various methods to offer NFP teaching through my practice that I wasn't able to do. And again, it was a God thing of putting Maggie in my life at the right time. And so we've worked together for the last 20 years now. So it's been pretty awesome. Now, when you talk about uh, some of the issues that like the depot shot and the pill would have, what are some of the side effects? How does that factor in? And then maybe just how do you feel as a woman about the fact like it's the women who are basically tasked with the burden? So, you know, a couple things on the first point on the side effects with, you know, a depot shot, birth control pill. Majority of women who do use any of these hormonal contraceptives do do fine with it. They really do. You know, there's a very, very small minority that do have a problem with it. My issue is why are we keeping people ignorant? Why not teach them how their body works? And it's as simple as tying a shoe or riding a bike. Once you have it figured out, it actually works out very effectively. And the science behind it was is what really convinced me this was the best way to go. And it's nice to give people an alternative. So out of my patients, not all of um Actually, majority aren't Catholic, but a lot of my NFP users use NFP for other reasons, not by faith-based. So they don't want to affect the environment. You know, they've found that with the birth control pill and the amount of estrogens in the water supply and how it affects toads and fish and all, there's a whole bunch of different science behind this. So I have a fair amount that are more, I would say, they're more concerned. They're very concerned about the environment, so they don't want to do anything that's going to affect the environment. They also respect their body. They don't want to put anything in their body that they don't feel like they need to. So there's a certain suspicion with some patients on the medical community on how we just throw pills at everything. A pill to lose weight, a pill to stop your fertility, a pill to stop whatever. So, But a lot of people do want to do more natural methods, healthy diet, exercise. You know, God gave our bodies the way they are for a reason. He's also given us a brain and knowledge so we can understand how they work. So there's, not, there's no reason why we can't optimize it. Yeah. It's very interesting. I know we've talked before about how the motivations for a lot of women opting out of the pill are not religious, like you said, ecological, et cetera. Um, something else I was going to ask you is uh, maybe just for the sake of our listeners, how exactly does the pill work? So the pill actually has three mechanisms of action. And this is interesting going through some of the historical stuff. So when it was being developed, and we can go off on a ton of tangents with this, but when it was being developed, the dosing was pretty high. Women were having issues, all sorts of health issues, but they're also looking at a pill to decrease men's fertility, as you've probably seen this before too, where the pill for the men's fertility, it decreased testicular size, so the research stopped because that wasn't deemed an acceptable complication, but yet for the women's birth control pill, stroke, death, some of these major, major side effects, but yet they kept kept researching. So part of me is a female, wow, so we have so little respect for our women that we're okay researching this, but we stopped researching on the guys for it a contraceptive method for that. Anyway, little tangent. What was the question again? I'm sorry. So how it works. So there's three mechanisms of action. First one is it decreases chance of ovulation. So every month women ovulates, the ovary travels through the fallopian tube. So the pill does prevent ovulation, but not all the time. There is about a 20% breakthrough ovulation. 
So the next mechanism action is the pill makes the cervical mucus almost like cement. It makes it very hard for the sperm to get into the cervical mucus. For a woman who's not on the pill, their cervical mucus is clear, stretchy, slippery. It's a wonderful barrier from infection. It's very protective to the woman. But when they're on the pill, it becomes very gunky, cement-like, so it's harder for the sperm to get to the egg. The third mechanism action is it prevents implantation. And this is a key mechanism action for listeners on how the pill works. So let's say a sperm does get through the cervical mucus and the ovary does have that 20% chance of breakthrough ovulation and conception does occur. The third mechanism of action is the embryo that's formed in the fallopian tube does not have a good environment to implant in the uterus. So then it just passes on through. So that's where some people say the pill is abortifacient. It prevents implantation. If you look at the package insert on birth control pills, it will have those three mechanisms of action. We don't really know what percentage is ovulation, what percentage is cervical mucus, what percent is preventing implantation. So at that time, of course, abortion is still illegal in the country in the 60s. The definition of when life starts in medical textbooks prior to the 1960s was at conception, sperm and egg getting together, conception, not implantation, conception. So once the researchers knew how the pill worked, and that was one of the mechanisms of action, the American College of OBGYN and some other medical groups changed the definition of when life started, that it wasn't at conception, it's now at implantation. Yeah, so they changed the definition in medical textbooks that life is now at implantation so the pill could get approved by FDA because now it's not considered abortifacient if life hasn't really started yet. So pretty underhanded. Kind of sounds George Orwell-like. So all this stuff, going through medical school and training, I really wasn't aware of all this backstory. And then as I was looking into changing my practice, the more I started researching this on my own and pulling out old textbooks and looking at the new ones and say, is this really true? I was really shocked. It is. So what would you say to the people who would say, you're being irresponsible because a lot of girls need it for health reasons, and why aren't you giving it to them for that? So, of course, I hear this argument all the time, and the pill has been marketed for periods being too long, too short, too heavy, too light, uh, of course, acne, mood issues. And what I found a lot of times, if we go back to basic biology, if there is a problem with pain during menses, how's her sleep cycle? What's her diet like? Is there other things we can investigate? How I look at medically is the pill covers up whatever the issue is that's going on. So it overrides the woman's system and so then she'll still have light periods but it overtakes her system for me to figure out medically what's going on it's hard if there's something else on board versus let's take a step back let's not jump to prescribing a pill let's investigate is it a thyroid problem is it other issues going on endometriosis polycystic ovary disease there's so many other things that we could help figure out and treat in a different way without jumping to the birth control pill that basically just masks the symptoms now listeners or my medical colleagues would say oh you're kind of pushing the limit here and the pill does have really some good uses I would argue I really don't think it does and out of 20 years of well 19 and a half years not prescribing the pill. I don't miss prescribing it, and I don't think I've done any harm with my patients. I really don't. Okay, thank you. Um, so tell us about NFP. How does it work, and how is it like different than, say, the rhythm method? Because a lot of people don't even know that that's a difference. Tell us about some of the advances that NFP has made and exactly how it works. 
Which is a wonderful question. NFP, natural family planning, is kind of the catch-all term. In our office, we call it fertility awareness. So we kind of take away that NFP because there is a certain amount of not a positive connotation with it. The church teaching, and this goes back to a long time, has always been very consistent. And some of your listeners are probably aware of the Lambeth Conference, the Anglican Conference, I think it was 1930s. All Christian denominations were against birth control for various reasons up until the 1930s. And the Anglicans said, well, no, if it's okay if it's between a married couple. At that time, researchers were looking at trying to understand how the women's cycle works. So from everything from cervical mucus to temperature, how the rhythm method came about, it is a calendar-based method that on a young woman or any woman with regular cycles that are reproducible, there's usually about the same time a woman will ovulate. And it's 12 to 14 days before her menstrual cycle, not after her cycle, 12 to 14 days before her cycle. So as it was being developed, it's taken some time, researchers throughout the world uh, with Dr. Billings looking at cervical mucus. There was a researcher in Japan looking at various things. So with my decision going to NFP only, it was actually taking all that into consideration on how it does work. So it isn't the calendar method. There's a modern method called cycle beads developed by Georgetown that's a little similar to the calendar method. But if somebody says they use NFP, oh, I got pregnant using NFP. Oh, what method did you use? Well, I was just counting days. Well, that's why you got pregnant. So the beauty of NFP, it actually looks at the woman's physiological signs and symptoms that she can track and she can monitor so she knows when she's fertile and when she's not. So it requires periodic abstinence, no? It does. And so a lot of people say, well, we, that we takes away our spontaneity. I don't know if I really necessarily see that from the couples I've interacted with. Having that periodic absence, if anything, it helps their relationship. They have to work on other communication methods instead of just the physical part. And couples I've also seen seem to really appreciate the bonding they've been able to develop with NFP. People, all of us, we tend to want to take the easier way out. And so the pills definitely would be the easier way, right? Because it doesn't require the discipline of periodic abstinence. Right. It's just something you have to take every day. But there are some things that make it not quite as effective. If somebody's on an antibiotic for some reason, if they don't take it all the time. So, you know, with anything we do in our life, there is always going to be a little bit of sacrifice. Not that necessarily taking a pill and having to remember is a sacrifice per se, but you still have to put some skin in the game. And the same thing with NFP. You have to have a little skin in the game. You have to make the effort to learn how your body works. I've heard this argument. Maybe you can comment on it. NFP or fertility awareness is actually the true feminist option. We give people a pill when they're sick, when something's wrong with them, and there's a pathology. Well, we're basically treating fertility like it's a pathology. And it's just like, I always thought it was kind of strange that the guys get off scot-free. Whereas like with NFP, it's like the opposite. It's like the guy has to curb his libido. He has to learn about his wife's body. So when we do celebrate the conjugal act, it's okay to do it. Correct me if I'm seeing something wrong in this equation, but to me, it just seems like the more pro-woman option. Yeah, I would 100% agree. And my women who are natural family planning that aren't necessarily Catholic or Christian or have a theological reason for being NFP, that is part of the reason that they'll say, or their relationship with their husband. They don't want to put a foreign substance in their body. And it's communication skills between wives and husbands are so much better with NFP. What I've seen, too, with NFP, they're not having that conversation once a year about when are they going to have kids. 
mm. as in every month. So couples that are where she's on the pill, she goes to the doctor once once a year. Okay, are we going to stay on the pill? Yes. Okay. So in a discussion about children, for our natural family planning, the child options out there all the time, and so it does definitely mm. help with communication. Can you say a little bit about how fertility awareness and NFP can actually help a woman get pregnant? Absolutely. So there are some women that some women are just we say fertile myrtles, they can just get pregnant super, super easy. But there's a certain part of our population that it is hard. They might not ovulate every month. They might, when they do ovulate, they might not have the best cervical mucus. So instead of a five-day window of getting pregnant, it might only be a 12-hour window of getting pregnant. Or if they're only ovulating four times a year, they have less opportunity. So the beauty of NFP is once she learns her cycle, she really knows how to not so much take advantage of it, but to be able to understand the beauty of it and take advantage of her ovulatory time to get pregnant. And we've seen couples, and Maggie's been a gem. Uh, We've had a particular couple not too long ago from another culture. Hard time getting pregnant, was trying fertility drugs. Nothing was working, nothing was working. They met with Maggie, and then I think either the next month or two months later, they got pregnant from just being able to fine-tune when they were having relations. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was just awesome that we were able to help them out in that way. Um, Kind of a big picture question. How does your faith, the fact that you are a Catholic Christian who believes that word became flesh and dwelt among us, suffered, died, and rose for us, so we could have eternal life. How does that affect the way you view your patients and the way you approach your practice in general? It's everything with how I view my patients. I really look at this, and you know, sometimes I look at emotional talking about it. My patients give me the privilege to take care of them. I mean, that's actually a big honor that somebody trusts you enough to take care of them. I don't take that lightly. You know, interacting with a patient is to meet them where they're at. So. Obviously, I'm not going to be preachy in the office. To love them for the human being that they are, to provide the best care that I can possibly give them, to be there for them. But when I meet them where they're at, is really trying to understand what their struggles are, what they're going through, and what I can do to assist them to the best of my ability. So I think my Christian faith really keeps that humanity in my practice of what's really important. You know, it's not important as the bottom line of making money and doing procedures. It's about really taking care of the patient and meeting them where they're at. We had somebody uh, just not too long ago that had a super bad experience with another provider to the point that she had to take a pill to come in for an exam. She had to take an anxiolytic Xanax because she was so distressed about it. And we sat there and talked. And I didn't do her exam until she was actually okay. And even when it came to that, there were certain parts that she did not want me to do. I'm like, that's okay. We don't have to. We can do this another time. It's more important to develop that trust, that relationship, than to push that medical decision-making. I need to do it at a certain point if it's not a life-threatening issue. So I really think my Christian faith really helps me see all my patients as images of God to treat them as godly as possible. So it keeps my focus on my practice. Uh, Why do you love your job? So many reasons. How would I not love my job? Oh my goodness. Every day it's a new adventure. It's a new experience. I seriously love what I do. And even though I jokingly will say I'm going to work until I'm 70, I've kind of put that time limit because I know myself, I will probably want to work until the day I die. I love it so much. Bringing new life into the world, helping women, just taking care of women, interacting with my patients, my staff. There's so much about my job that's beyond words that I just absolutely love. And I think my patients can see that. I think they know that how much I really enjoy taking care of them. Can you tell us some of your favorite delivery stories? Oh my gosh, so many awesome stories. Um, One recent one, and of course, never, you know, hit the rules, not violating any security concerns. I was able to deliver a baby of a baby. So for me, that was huge. The fact I've been in practice so long, 
that is able to deliver a young lady's child that I delivered her. So to me, that was pretty awesome. And it was a beautiful delivery. Oh my gosh, it was phenomenal, wonderful family. Just the prayers, the support, it was just really hard to even describe. It was just beautiful. What an act of confidence that is, that like the mother had such a good experience that when it's time for her to give birth, she wants you there. Had any had any close calls that were like you know really kind of like dicey? Yeah, you know, OB, I don't know, number ninety ninety five percent things are fairly easy, uncomplicated, but things can get pretty difficult. I mean, OB can be a stressful field. Obviously, our concern is taking care of the mom and baby. There are times. Well, actually, there's a lot of different delivery stories, too. But there are times when it's risky. There's risky for mom for various reasons. Uh, so many things that can go with the baby, a placenta abruption or her water bag could break too early. Uh, cord around the neck, there can be cord accidents. And, yes, I've had babies where babies have died, which can happen, and it's heartbreaking. I mean, there's nothing you ever want to do is see somebody lose their baby. Or with what we do with Women's Choice Center, perinatal hospice, where somebody has a pregnancy and then the baby on the inside has various anomalies that are basically incompatible with life. So in a secular practice, they would be offered a termination. Oh, your baby's going to die anyway. Let's just offer you termination so you don't have to go through pregnancy. Where perinatal hospice and what we offer is, no, we're going to love that child intrauterine, provide the best support, the best home possible, let the mom enjoy the pregnancy, having that time with baby, encouraging her and being a mom with the baby on the inside, and supporting her with the difficulty of knowing her child is going to die. So there are some beauties of what I get to do as a Catholic practitioner that other docs might not even know this is available because it is not part of what our secular medicine teaches. How many babies have you delivered? Oh my gosh, that's a huge number. Um, probably 2,000 in residency, average anywhere from 10 to 15 a month. I've been in practice almost 21 years, so probably thousands. And they've all been phenomenal. I mean, they all have their own unique stories, and it's just beauty to be able to be involved with all the different families. Do you have any funny, scared husband stories? Oh my gosh. Well, we've had a couple of dads that have gone down for the count, even with if their wives are getting an epidural, which is precious because they're so there and they want to be there, but it might be two or three in the morning. They haven't had anything to eat. They see the needle and poof, down they go. And sometimes they end up in the hospital as long as the mom. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, they're there. They're trying to be there for their wives. It's That's pretty awesome. Other dads just, yeah, they're, men are interested in the delivery room. You could tell the ones that really love their wives, they want to be there. And even the ones who, I think they all love their wives, they're all, well, of course they love their wives. But even the baby daddies or the boyfriends, their level of involvement, some are right there and some aren't so there. We had one particular dad that brought in his Xbox system so he could play video games while she was in labor. I'm like, well, that's really not so good, but we talked about it for a little bit. What would your advice be to fellow physicians and especially aspiring OBs? Consider being outside the box. Learn about NFP. You know, don't just listen to what I have to say. The research is out there. There's a ton of information. And talk with your patients. Talk about the one, talk to your patients, especially who do not use the pill, and ask them why, how they feel, how are their marriages, um, how many of your patients are getting divorced. You know, the nice thing with my practice, especially with my NFP patients, super, super low divorce rate. I don't know if hardly any of them ever get divorced, which for families, the family is the, the building block of our society, of our community. So anything we can do to strengthen families. Why do you think, I've heard various theories, why do you think that there's this connection between practice of NFP and low divorce rate? The respect of the woman's body, I think, is number one. And really that they're together, together forever. 
And so that mutual respect, they want the best for each other, and the communication skills. They have to be able to communicate in non-physical ways when they need to. And so they have that skill set because they're in the absence period. They're pretty much forced to be able to communicate in other ways. Mm. So I really think there's just so many blessings. And in a community like the Quad Cities, where we have a fair amount of people that do practice NFP, they're supportive. The, you know, the dads, one guy's guy friends who also might be doing NFP, they can be supportive of their friends that are going through this. So I think there's a certain amount of respect and support within the community. And the same thing with the women for mm-hmm. pregnancies of, you know, girls being pregnant when they first get married in their 20s versus moms getting pregnant when they already have grandbabies and when they're in their 40s. I was going to ask, like, what other, you mentioned Janet Smith's talk, Contraception, Why Not? You said there's a lot of good resources. What would be some of the kind of go-to resources, uh, maybe for people who want to verify that you're not just making this up or like to get some of the science behind it or even some of the theology behind it? So awesome resources. Um, number one, I'll put a plug in for Relevant Radio. Most places I have Relevant Radio close by, so at least you get a little bit of theology. For the medical, One More Soul, omsoul.com, has a whole bunch of resources on like the Janet Smith tape and various other ones for families, doctors, priests. Couple to Couple League, also ccl.org, also has a lot of resources. Catholic Medical Association, uh, Lineker Quarterly is the Catholic Medical Association journal. They have everything from treating ectopics to reproductive issues. NFP sources, there's a Creighton model, NAPRO technology. Uh, Dr. Hilders out in Omaha has a whole set program. If anybody would be like a family practice doctor and wants to be interested in learning more, there's resources there. Of course, the internet has a whole bunch of sources. For myself, there was a book called Physician Healed that I also read back in the late 90s, and it talked 10 stories of different doctors changing their practice and how they made that change. That was pretty instrumental. Uh, Theology of the Body. And so any of the theologians who've done various things based on theology of the body, that wasn't a real big turning point for me. I think it was actually a little bit over my head on the theology. Love JP too, but I don't have the theology background. So Janet Smith is more my speed. The materials are out there. There's a lot of resources. Where do you see this thing going if, if you could put on your prophet's hat for a minute? 10, 20 years. I think there's some positive signs in the culture, like the Me Too movement, that people are starting to wake up and realize, like, holy cow, like, we're treating women, like, terribly. And in many ways, you know, there's a chauvinism that's just deeply, deeply embedded in the culture, despite the lip service that we pay. And I don't know, to me, there would seem to be an opportunity for maybe a greater awakening with regards to some of these issues. I know, for instance, the public opinion on abortion is probably teetering now just over the 50% of people polled are probably more or less against it. I don't know, do you see us going farther and farther down the the route of the contraceptive culture, or do you see some more pushback to that? Do you think there might be some, maybe some hopes in the future of people looking at things a different way? I'm really optimistic. I think our younger generation is seeing, I mean, the resources are there. They're um, more educated on their body, on what's going on. They're just not taking somebody else's word for it. They're investigating things on their own. So I think our younger culture is very in tune to finding out the why, 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 why. Not just accepting, oh, take this pill because I tell you so. Oh, really? Why? So they really want to know how their body works and the reasoning. With the NFP movement that there's so many resources available, more and more docs are looking into it. Families are definitely looking into it. Interesting on the whole abortion culture, a lot of states are looking at giving midwives and mid-levels abortion-providing 
credentials or practice because the doctors aren't wanting to do abortions. They're finding very, very few doctors willing to do abortions. ACOG pushing back wants to have a subspecialty on abortion specialists. So it's interesting, at least in the medical community, how it's kind of going back and forth on abortion providers, even looking at the pill that's used to do a medical abortion. We now have some wonderful research on how to counteract that. So if someone takes a medical pill for an abortion and before she takes the second one, if she changes her mind, we can actually help reverse that and still have a live baby. So there's a lot of hope, a lot of hope in our younger generation. The pro-contraceptive, anti-family, anti-mom, it's going to just die out on its own because people aren't having babies or material goods are more important than family. So interesting on a society issue, there are countries throughout the world right now that their reproductive rate is less than replacement. So they're now encouraging women to have babies. Yeah, they're incentivizing, exactly, whether it's tax breaks or money. And the only reason in the U.S. that we still have a increasing population is actually our immigrant population. So there's so many factors in play that are affecting all this. Finally, we haven't really dived too much into your spiritual life, but obviously to do what you do requires that you have, you're getting fed spiritually, you're getting nourished. So what are the sources of nourishment? What feeds you? What sustains you? How do you keep your fire going, your love of God and love of neighbor? So I'm always trying to read something spiritual. Right now, uh, Jacques Philippe is the series of books I am reading, and it's been very, very helpful. Obviously, daily, not daily mass. I wish I could go to daily mass. Weekly mass. I try to hit a mass during the week if I can. Um, Lunch hour. usually can't make it before office. Adoration. Going to adoration once a week for that hour. hour. I do have an hour. That The hour I've been doing is not working out anymore with my son's schedule, but I'm hoping to keep doing an hour a week. I just have to figure out what time is going to work with work schedule. Um, Prayer life. I would love to say I say rosary every day. I don't. I probably get, you know, 10 Hail Marys in. Prayer before office. Prayer before I go to bed. Prayer before I go into a delivery. Even, you know, a quiet one in my head. Just, you know, please, God, let me help take care of this woman that for whatever else I'm saying in my head for that. Um, it's huge. And then having a core group of friends that are spiritual warriors that I can reach out and say, hey, you know, I'm really struggling. And they'll say, hey, we'll lift you up in prayer. I can't tell you how much that has been so beneficial of knowing I've got that prayer support from people in the community. It's just words can't even describe how much I appreciate it. I do want to say uh, one last thing. I want to brag on the time I was in the uh, room with you. So two, I guess it was two Junes ago. For the listeners here, uh, I got a call from a grandma who uh, was going to have a grandbaby. Her daughter was going to have a baby. And it was a very high-risk pregnancy. The baby had uh, a lot of issues. They thought the baby not, might not be viable. So they wanted to have a priest there to baptize the baby right away. And the pastor was out of town, so they had called me. And so it was my first time ever being in a delivery room. It was a C-section, so, you know, it was probably a little bit less hair-raising than traditional delivery. But came in there, scrubbed up, and it wasn't until I'm getting getting ready to get into the room that I realized you were the delivering physician. And, I mean, it was like, it was like watching Mozart conduct a symphony. I mean, you were just in your element. You made everyone at ease. It was like watching a master at work. And uh, I was just so proud to be your friend and so proud to know you and just so amazed at the miracle of what you do day in and day out and and really kind of how easy you made it look, how at ease you made the mom feel. I remember it was funny because I didn't, there was a little screen. All we saw was the belly, you know, you're getting ready to make the incision. And... I'm like talking about the mom as if she's like asleep. Like, I was like, does the mom, like, is she worried about the baby? Is she 
And mom's like, I'm right here. <laughs> I can hear you. I'm like, what? She's awake? You're like, yeah, we just give her a just give her a local for this. Um, but I just, I thought it was so amazing. And uh, just props to you for the great work. Being able to watch somebody do something that they do really well, then they love it and do it so well. Of course, happy to hear everybody. The baby was fine. So yeah, just bragging on you a little bit there. I appreciate that, Father. And that is, I'm very blessed to love what I do. And like I said, it's um, God's given me the gift to be able to provide care and Hopefully I'll never take it for granted. I'm incredibly appreciative for patience, for trusting me, and I get to do what I love to do. And life's good. God's awesome. Our, our local community, the moms of this local community, our local church, and really the world is just better for what you do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, God bless you and your practice, and uh, I, I wish you many, many more great, great years of doing what you're doing. Thank you, Father.